0: Welcome back, friends, to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thank you for listening. And for those of you who have, I don't know, made the extra step of participating with this podcast in some way, I've had a lot of interesting feedback over the last few weeks. I think it's because of the content. I did a podcast on the magical other, and I did a couple podcasts on the shadow or related to the shadow. And before that, I did some podcasts on the Enneagram, which stepped on a few toes, and um, and I, I have appreciated the feedback, um, the questions, the comments, even the sort of uh, pushing back on things that I I've said. I, I that's what I hope this podcast is called Hints and Guesses, and that's about the best I can do is offer a few hints and guesses, um, and a special thanks to my Patreon supporters. It means a lot that people are saying, hey, this podcast is helpful and I'd like to be part of the team. So thank you for supporting that. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson or the link is on my website, Dobson.com. And um, it's amazing that there is like a kind of, that we can have a direct relationship between sort of artist and um I don't know consumer. That's not even the right the right word. Um, It's just a cool it's a cool new world we live in. So anyway, I just wanted to say thank you. This week, I want to talk about narcissism. Maybe the the title is "How Not to Be a Narcissist." (laughs) Um, And I, I guess I woke up this morning. I've actually I tried to make this podcast twice, and I've failed and that happens to me sometimes like something is stirring and a story a question an idea and sometimes if i if i um feel a bit blocked and push i can push through the barrier other times the barrier is too great and maybe it pushes back and i right in the middle of making a podcast yesterday i just stopped and um sat on the couch in my office and allowed the my mind to wander and the muse to do her whispering or not to do her whispering because i don't know there there's um there's a strange relationship between creativity solitude quiet questions and the wellspring of of inspiration like i i it's not something that I'm in control of. I wish it was. I wish I could conjure it up or manufacture it. But it's much more like a dance or like a courtship. And when the muse whispers, the muse whispers. And this morning, the muse whispered two things. The first was a poem from David White. And I'll I'll, I'll speak it now. But I'm, I'm not looking it up, so if I don't get all the words right, you can look it up yourself. But anyway, the, the poem is called Loaves and Fishes, and here's how it goes. This is not the age of information. This is not the age of information. Forget the news and the blurred screen and the radio. This is the time for loaves and fishes where one good word is bread for a thousand. That's the poem or part of the poem. This is not the age of information. And and maybe it's because uh, yesterday I saw on the the news outlets that the impeachment proceedings were starting today. And so we're going to be, over the next few days, inundated with information, all kinds of information. And in a way, if, if you're not a fan of Trump, you might feel your own greed or glutton uh, rising up saying, oh, I want, I want information that confirms my bias. I want information that proves that he's a narcissist, for example, um, or that he broke the law and he, and he should be punished and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that kind of uh, zeal that comes up, I think, out of a deep anxiety that the world is not as it should be and actually much more of... The globe and the climate feels out of our control and like to, you know, I don't know if you saw that uh, one of one million other um, papers and studies that have come out, something like 11,000 scientists got together and said, this is a climate crisis. So what do you do with that? I mean, you don't just say, well, I'm, I am guess, I guess I'm going to work. Uh, I, maybe that's all you can do is say, I guess I'm going to work. But beneath that, there's a growing anxiety, and just to find somebody to pin this on, like a Trump or, like big business or, you know, Ford Motor Company. Or I don't know. If, pick an enemy. It doesn't even matter what it is. Um, I guess it alleviates the the sense of dread beneath that. And so I find David White's poem to be quite challenging. This is not the age of information this is not the age of information. And part of me wants to say, yes, it is. In fact, that's all it is. It's uh, a flood of unlimited information. And I've been thinking a lot about my phone and and um, the, the kind of mixed feelings I have about using it. And one of the things that's obvious is that it decides, <laughs> it's like it like almost as it's like an autonomous, independent entity, it decides what's important for me to know. I mean, that's a strange uh, reality. And and every day it's changing and refreshing and updating. And it's saying, this is important. This is important. This is important. I used to mock the ticker at the bottom of CNN or Fox News because it's like urgent, 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 but it's deciding what's urgent. But my phone is doing the same thing every single day on my newsfeed. And not only that, I use Facebook and Instagram, and I I quit using Twitter a, a few months ago, and I think it helped. Um, wh- what would I say that it helped? It it helped um, my my level of engagement. I think with um, with the complexities of just being in the modern world, meaning it wasn't deciding what. Um, where my emotional energy should go because that's how, what I feel Twitter is like. And there's no such thing as an in-depth conversation on Twitter or very rarely. I mean, maybe those of you who are more into it would argue differently, but that's not the way I see it. It's, um, you know, 140 characters. So there's no, it's, it's guaranteed not to produce any depth really. And that doesn't mean it's, it's pointless, but, (laughs) but it does decide where the emotional energy is going. And so maybe it's helped a little bit, but, have all these other outlets that are deciding ahead of time and actually screaming quite the opposite. This is the age of information. You better be well-informed. And David White is saying something like, no, it's not the age of information. In fact, we have more information than we know what to do with. This is the time of loaves and fishes, which is a reference to Jesus feeding the 5,000 and 4,000. There are two feeding stories uh, in the Gospels this is the time of loaves and fishes and in the story of course you have a little boy who i think says well i've got these i've i've got these few things i've got a a few loaves of bread and and, and some fish and and that begins to multiply and it's interesting because they just sort of notice that it's multiplied over time it's not like the the kind of miracle stories that's what um, Christians might call them in the Gospels. It's it's not quite like that. Oftentimes, it's you know Jesus says get um, take up your mat and walk, and we say oh it's a miracle he couldn't walk before and now he does, but we don't know what's happening. It's just it's just noticing the man couldn't walk and now he's walking, or we we started off with just a few loaves of bread and and a couple of fish, and we're noticing that people are eating. So what is happening? It's like a, it's like really a shift in consciousness and that is also taking place. How? We don't know. Almost like we look at the, we're just noticing that the world is being fed and he's saying it's that kind of time where something very small and insignificant, like he says at the end of poem, one good word is bread for a thousand and, and that is what I'm hungry for. And it's almost like the news feed and the impeachment and the climate news. I mean, it's, we're absolutely dying for one good word. And maybe I've used this poem before on the podcast, but that's the thing with um, certain kinds of poems is that they work on us and they work with us. And they're um, like, a, I just had a crow fly by the window in the winter sky here and. I'm out in Grand Haven at my office at C3, um, and that, that kind of raven or crow call in the in the winter um, in the winter air. It's like it reminds us <laughs> it reminds us of life and death at the same time. For me, with a crow, it's like, and that's like a poem. It's like calling out in the middle of uh, the bustle of a uh, Of modern contemporary life it's the crow flies by in a solitude calling out that's like a poem and um a couple weeks ago i was talking at c3 i did a talk on where i used the the narcissist myth and that's so it's been floating around in my head now for a while and and i thought i'll make i'll try to make a podcast on it um and one of the things that I, I found myself saying, I don't know if it was in that talk or in a, in a previous one, is that, okay, we live in an age of information, but we, let's follow the news with a poem. Let's follow the sitcom with a work of art. Let's um, follow the, the pop uh, radio with, um, with Mozart or something like that. I mean, just like um, that kind of correction toward depth, I might say, is part of what I hear in David White's poem, One Good Word is Bread for a Thousand. And let's allow, part of what I'm saying right right now is, let's allow the craving, or let's allow the anxiety to deepen into a craving, and that craving to deepen into a longing, and let that longing uh, deepen into, or let that longing settle its roots down into, into the soil of meaning, into the depths, into the underworld, into the, the places in human culture and in nature where meaning is, it just is and doesn't have to be fought for, defended, or argued about, but is, um, is coming up from the deep wells, up through the root system. Into the core of our being. So, that, so I was thinking about that poem this morning. This is not the age of information, and um, <clears throat> and the other line that came to me this morning was just the famous line from Gandhi. He said, "Be the change you want to see in the world." And I think that's, I mean, maybe it's been an overused, overused cliche, but there's, I think it's quite profound. Be the change you want to see in the world, and most of the time, the energy is quite different. And I'll, I'll speak personally. I want the world to change to fit my, um, my worldview, essentially, my way of seeing things. Everyone out there, including the Trump administration, and more than that, the government and this dualistic, polarizing um, vortex of ideology, that thing needs to change and conform to what? My, um, my life? Uh, the way I see things, anyway, that that's a lot of, um, that's a lot of what takes up our energy. The external forms. That thing needs to change, not me. <laughs> and you know, I, I, maybe there's more to this Gandhi insight than even that. I mean, it's like, what's that other line? I I have um, seen the enemy, and the enemy is me, or the enemy is in the mirror. And I think that's um, maybe part of ancient wisdom period that um, I think the great wisdom tradition, the perennial tradition, the perennial philosophical tradition, the um, great myths and stories from Greek culture and the great myths and stories from the Bible oftentimes um, hold up a mirror and are saying something like, be the change you want to see in the world. Don't be so sure. It's like, it's like, um, you know, it's like Jesus saying, "Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see the speck of dust in your brother's eye." So that that kind of inner journey is always the invitation in times of anxiety and dread and fear and social change and collapse and, um, <clears throat> in other words, modern life um and also lots of opportunities i'm sounding not sounding quite negative i mean there's there's all kinds of amazing things happening and innovations and technologies and 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 art and beauty and so forth and so on so it's not just so one-sided but so i was thinking about that line be the change you want to see in the world and gandhi says this as being one of the most successful political nonviolent political revolutionaries in uh, the modern modern history maybe ever And you'd think he'd say, change the external world, but he says, no, you be the change. And um, so, those are are my background um, whisperings. Something about this poem, One Good Word is Bread for a Thousand in the Age of Information, Um, and something about this uh, invitation that Gandhi is saying, be the change you want to see in the world. And it's backdrop to a conversation about narcissism, and I want to kind of talk about it on a more popular level, kind of the way people use it, and and I, then I want to talk about the myth itself, what is in the story, and not in great depth, but um, just in in what is in the outline or the shape of the story, and what what is it offering in terms of invitation. So that's where we're going. Now, maybe a, the a good opening question is: What do you think narcissism is? Because, like, like so many things lately, there's very little effort made toward definition. You know, people, like, think words like consciousness or whatever. Um, narcissism is one of those words that's getting thrown around a lot. I remember a couple of years ago, a friend of mine had decided, had looked up the definition of narcissism and looked up all of the sort of, uh, I don't know indications that one might be a narcissist, and had decided that his father was a narcissist, and that had he had gotten his brothers on board and they had all, you know, agreed that he's a narcissist, which is, um, you know, this is like arm armchair uh, psychology um, being a clinician kind of on the side using wikipedia and we're all prone to that i've done the same thing so i'm not like acting so superior but it's getting it get, it's get, gets used in the kind of parental dynamics it, it also is being used with spousal relationships so i'm of the age where a lot of my friends are getting divorced and this word comes up a lot one of the things i realized is that so-and-so is a narcissist and, you know, how do you know that? And what do you mean by that? And, um, you know, what's happening? I mean, we could have a whole conversation about the, the desire to label. That's kind of why I made a, a podcast on the Enneagram was that when we're in the business of labeling, we're really not seeing the other as other. Even if it's true that your spouse or your parent or your boss displays some signs of narcissism. And maybe it's not so important to really drill down to a clinical definition right now. You can look that up on your own. We're just talking about it in the popular sense that a, what's a narcissist? Somebody who um, who is living a relatively self-contained world and a kind of fantasy world. They are their own ego... Uh, fantasy, their own ego proje- projection, or their own persona—persona uh, persona means mask, of course—is um, impenetrable and is allows in no other outside input, but is a kind of self-contained world. This—I'm actually just kind of riffing on on my own kind of definition, how I think, think about it. And we would say a narcissist tends to lack empathy, tends to be unable to break out of the self-contained fantasy world that they're living in. And of course, then they manipulate other people and situations to serve that image, to serve the image they have of themselves. And oftentimes, the way we're using narcissism in a popular sense is around ego inflation. Um, and, and that's why Trump gets labeled a narcissist because he definitely has some ego inflation, obviously, you know, about his own genius and ability and, and no president in the United States has been healthier than, than he has been. And, you know, all those kind of statements that, that are kind of silly in a way, um, definitely expose a kind of, of inflation tendency, a kind of ego inflation, whether it's technically narcissism, we don't know. I mean, I'm not his, you know, therapist or something like that. Um, But in a popular sense, we might say, yeah, that conforms to these narcissistic tendencies. And um, I might throw in another kind of – because there's an inflation-deflation dynamic where the most obvious forms of this self-contained world of narcissism is ego inflation, I'm the greatest. It could also be said that a kind of deflation – a minimizing of the personality to an extreme form. Um, who am I? Woe is me. Um, being a small, you know, as a mouse kind of, I don't deserve is also quite narcissistic as well. It's a self-contained um, illusion of the ego. And actually my smallness is, is a in a way feeds that image. And people, I, I use people to manipulate and feed that, woe was me, um, almost victim kind of mentality. It's a kind of narcissism too. I'm throwing that in just because um, I don't want, I think it is important to say narcissism, loosely speaking, culturally speaking, doesn't just look like ego inflation. It looks like a kind of self-worship and a self-worship of a certain image that one has that seems pretty solid and impenetrable. And you're pretty sure, in a way, you know who you are, and I was made this way, and so forth and so on. Um, anyway, that's kind of the way I think people are using it in a popular sense. And oh, I think what... I mean, we could I, we could just add that Freud is the one that – he wasn't the pr- first person to use the word narcissism, by the way, but he did have a paper or a book where that is all about um, his definition and extension of narcissism, coming from the myth of narcissus. And here's where I'd like to dive into the myth just a little bit, the story of the myth. So, what Freud was interested in was the single image of narcissus as a young man staring into a pool – Um, a pristine pool of water and seeing back his own reflection, but not knowing, this is what's so interesting, not knowing it's his own reflection and falling in love. So, the, the, um, I think that that's an important direction that then psychology took more broadly around the definition of narcissism. It's self-love. It's falling in love with an image of yourself. That's why where I think the, the myth is so powerful in that single image. But Freud didn't talk about the, the whole myth, and I'm not going to talk about the entire thing right now, but I think it contains a few elements that are definitely worth pointing out. Because back to my title of the of the podcast, How Not to Be a Narcissist. What I'm saying is that we all have a narcissistic pull, a tendency, an aim, and it, certain things in life can correct that or disrupt that or break that, um, and certain things in life can can build that up and and create buffers around it so that nothing shatters this kind of image. I think it's important to say, if you want less narcissism in the world, be the change you want to see in the world. You have to deal with your own. And um, and maybe there's one more thing I would point out before I tell you a little bit more about the myth. And and this comes from Ken Wilber. If I haven't said it on this podcast, I'm I'm sure I have because I just I can't help I repeat myself from time to time. And I've definitely said it at C3. I I love this image from Ken Wilber. He says the modern era, especially modern Western culture, which is not exclusively American, but Western culture in it in general, is stuck in a cul-de-sac, which is a lovely image in and of itself. It's that suburban image, the cookie-cutter um, house image, where, again, other people have decided what is popular and beautiful and and efficient and, and contains a kind of social hierarchy of, of identity and meaning. The bigger the cookie-cutter, cul-de-sac the more influential you are the closer you are to the god of our era which is fame so um fame and maybe economic or material possession so he says we live in a cul-de-sac and the, in the cul-de-sac is narcissism and nihilism and first a word a brief word on nihilism meaning nil nothing meaninglessness and I don't know, well, I should just speak personally. I am regularly in whatever corner of the cul-de-sac, I know it's round, cul-de-sac, <laughs> um, is the uh, is the nihilistic one. I find myself there a lot. I can easily go down the rabbit hole of nihilism, especially when it comes to climate news. And, and I've done a lot of reading around climate science and articles, and, and I have to be honest, Facebook, Reposts and posts and reposts that confirm my bias, but often um, lead me to a pretty nihilistic place. Um, Not only is there no point, I'm not sure that there's any meaning in the universe. We are random particles bumping into one another, and consciousness is a kind of, of curse. You know, that's a pretty dark place to go, but. It's in the water. That's why Ken Wilber is saying the cul-de-sac is nihilistic. And on the other maybe um, side of this round object, the cul-de-sac, is narcissism. Widespread, affirmed, cultural narcissism. I did it my way, my feed, the iPod, the iPhone, Uh very little conversation, even around, um, I don't know, cultural sacrifice, community concern, um, community service, like old fashioned words in a narcissistic culture are really, really in the backseat. Um, and it's much more about my way and my rights and, and, Is very dualistic, and any and and actually in a very narcissistic kind of culture, anything that does not conform to my way is the enemy and is the problem, and should be sent away or punished or killed or, or um, marginalized or demonized or you know if it's religious sense, tormented by God for all eternity. You know that's I and and maybe just a brief word on religion. Even the idea of of personal salvation has a kind of narcissistic side to it. And that was much of the world that I grew up in. Do you know for sure that if you were to die right now, you would go to heaven? And I prayed a prayer and I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. This was all language that that was part of my childhood and part of the Baptist world that I grew up in. And, um, and of course, I'm not a against it. You can read my book, uh, Bitten by a Camel. I have mixed feelings, like we all do, about the world that we grew up in. It fed me well and also um, was a goad that kicked me out of the nest, I guess. Um, But in any case, my main point was, um, it's pretty narcissistic. It's personal salvation. Um, We used to say, if... uh, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would still need to die for your sins. God, what a narcissistic world! Like, what a um, talk about a high view of yourself. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> but it's not—it's not just them, the Baptists. It's everybody. It's a much more narcissistic. Nihilistic world. And maybe uh, one more uh, word on nihilism it's a kind of narcissism as well. I know and I've decided there's no meaning in the universe. Oh, really? Um, You've done the math. You've done the uh, philosophical computing, and now you know um, there is no meaning, which is in a strange way is is actually making a meaning claim to say there's no meaning. But that's not, that's kind of the irony of the position anyway. But I'm stuck in the cul-de-sac a lot of the time. And I think the story of Narcissus, Narcissus it, it creates a little invitation for ways we might exit the cul-de-sac and return to the stream and the flow of life, the river of life with its twists and turns and waterfalls and stumps and frozen bits and... um yeah but in the flow of life rather than in the cul-de-sac that we find ourselves in. So, the uh, story of uh, Narcissus begins with his birth. His father is um, a, uh, a water god, I believe, and his mother is a nymph. So, he has watery origins, which probably relates to a little bit to the image that he falls in love with at the end, which is, the surface of the water. So, it's kind of, there's some parental dynamics uh, perhaps going on there. So, anyway, he's born, and what it says right away of him is that he's very beautiful. And as he comes of age, he is a pretty prideful person. And where am I getting this, by the way, if you want to know? This is from Ovid. There are several versions of this story. The oldest, most intact one is from Ovid. Ovid is um, uh, was a poet, during the time of Caesar Augustus, same time Jesus was born. So I think there's something interesting going on there in the kind of eastern-western um, dynamic that um, Christianity um, and really this Jewish sect of Christianity emerged up out of. It's the the east and the west are meeting here. Uh, Judaism is a bit more of a of an eastern-oriented religion in its roots, and Greek philosophy is western um, mostly. But anyway, so that emerged up out of this time was the story of, of Narcissus. And uh, anyway, uh, as he comes of age, he's um, a pretty prideful person. And it says many youths, boys and girls, would fall in love with him or wanted to be near him, but he basically didn't have the time of day, brushed them aside, and went about his business. And and actually, Ovid says, was was unaffected by the presence of other people. And a prophecy is given at the beginning of his life, and the prophecy is something like, um, will he live to a um, an old age and live a long life? And, and it says something like, if he does not come to know himself. The phrase is something like that, if he does not come to know himself. It's very cryptic, as all um, as all sort of prophetic pronouncements are. You're not sure how to read them, and that's part of the point. It creates a kind of metaphoric and symbolic landscape to one's life. And so, it's sort of a question, will he come to know himself and what part of himself? And it sort of sets the stage. And anyway, as the story progresses, at the age of 16... He's out doing 16-year-old boy things in the Greek world, and he's hunting, and he's out with hunting partners and so forth. And one particular nymph named Echo falls in love with Narcissus and begins to follow him around at a distance, not making herself known, but following him. And really burning with passion for his beauty and his maybe his confidence and and. In this image and something's arising within her, but, but Echo is also under a kind of curse in a way and is unable, has yet to find her her voice, her true voice, isn't unable to speak and she can only repeat back what she hears, that, hence the, her name, Echo. And anyway, one day Narcissus is separated from his hunting partner, so he's alone and he cries out, um, is anybody here? And he hears back from the woods the word Here. And it begins this really lovely and kind of sad dance between Narcissus and Echo where Narcissus keeps repeating different phrases and she repeats back. Sometimes just the final word, sometimes a whole line. And they go back and forth uh, and her burning with passion and love for Narcissus and, and Narcissus just hearing back an echo of his own words. And... Um, and finally, she has the courage to come out of hiding and she does and goes to reach her arms around Narcissus as if this, um, the dance of romantic fantasy here was reciprocal for Echo. It's not, she realizes, And Narcissus says, away from me. You will never have me. You'll never get in, is basically his response. And he completely cuts her off. And she's torn to shreds on the heart level and wanders around in caves and is heartbroken and eventually ends up drying up, turning to bone, and that bone turns into stone. And you can still hear her in the canyons, you know, like, shouting out your own name, Kent, and hearing back from the stone canyon walls, Kent, you know, that's the, that's the remnants of echo uh, in, the, in this natural phenomenon. And anyway, uh, Narcissus, uh, after this, lays down by a pool, a pristine pool uh, in some tucked away corner in the forest to rest and to quench his thirst. And as he bends down to quench his thirst, he sees his own reflection but he doesn't know it. That's the important part. Freud, that's what Freud was pointing out. Um, and also that's in the story. He doesn't know it's him. And he begins to fall in love with his eyes and his hair and, and his beauty and his form and his cheeks. And, and, and he's, he tries to bend down and kiss his own reflection only to have it dissipate, reaches out with his hands only to have it dissipate. And this um, the same kind of burning passion that Echo had for Narcissus, he has for himself, but it's just in the image of himself. And eventually, in complete frustration, he begins to fall into despair and beat his chest, and and is saying things like, "I would rather die than be separated um, from this from this being that is that is my true love, and I I want to die at one spirit with this with this being, not knowing, of course, it's his own reflection, and and that kind of and he begins to waste away, just like Echo, until eventually he withers and, and the nymphs and other beings of the forest, and I, maybe even Echo, I don't know, I, I, I can't remember the exact details, eventually comes near the pool only to find he's been turned into a flower. And most likely the flower is the daffodil with the white petals, one of the first flowers of spring in the yellow center, the Narcissus flower. And um, maybe, and then, and of course the natural world then serves as a reminder, every single uh, spring, this beauty that comes up out of the darkness of the winter is so fleeting and it returns um, back to the ground almost uh, just within a week or so of it emerging from the forest floor. I love the idea that myths and stories are in conversation with the natural world. I mean, it's like I mean, it's just amazing. The human imagination and the human imagination around storytelling, finding cause meaning is already built into the natural order of things, but just playing with stories and myths and symbols and and flowers and canyon walls and and trying to tell stories that that provoke and and help us grow up. So let's let's kind of riff on the story a bit. What's this story is about? It's about being an adolescent. And adolescence is the age where we don't know who we are, and and we're trying to find out who we are. It's that dual pull of, I need others to tell me who I am. In other words, that's the pull to fit in, and I need to find my own authenticity. Bill Plotkin, in his uh, book, um, Nature and the Human Soul, uh, talks about adolescence like this, that that dual pull for authenticity and social acceptance. That's his word, authenticity and social acceptance. And it's a fiery time to be alive. And it's the time of life when we are most likely to be trying on personas and masks and personalities and clothing. Like when I switched from, I don't know, dressing like a soccer player to wearing um grunge clothing and like uh, I was trying to think of uh, thermal underwear and and shorts that was like a thing for a while thermal underwear shorts and a flannel an unbuttoned flannel and um <clears throat> you know that was that was my 16 uh, year old self you know who is that person i still wear flannel by the way that was my authentic self um but you, but that that I that craving of where do I fit in, and, and it's also the age where we're most likely to begin to fall in love with ourselves, both in terms of inflation or deflation, the inflated image we have of ourselves, or the deflated image we have of ourselves, begin to stare in the mirror, um, stare in the reflection, and it's probably the time of life, honestly, when we're most likely to look in the mirror, <laughs> and. I actually noticed, I'm going to sound like super holy and I don't mean it this way, but in in college I had this idea that for one semester I was not going to look in the mirror. And uh, it was actually really challenging getting out of the shower. And You wouldn't believe how how many mirrors are just like around in public spaces. It was a stupid experiment and it didn't go so well, but I I was trying to shed the, I think maybe what was happening, I was trying to shed this idea that... um, that my own reflection is the thing that I needed to focus on, you know? I guess that that is part of being that age. Who am I? And what is this reflection telling me? So, the story is setting it around the age of 16, saying, if you don't figure this out, you're going to end up falling in love with yourself. And maybe actually the same could be said of Echo, from because this is a feminine, masculine kind of Um, yin and yang sort of story. So you can separate the characters and say, these are two separate characters. One is feminine, one is masculine. That's one way of saying it. You got a 16-year-old boy in love with himself and you have Echo who's yet to find her voice and can only echo back what she hears. And if she doesn't find her voice, she's going to wither away. That's part of the story and that's what ends up happening. Same with Narcissus. You could also look at the story of being um, two sides of of the human psyche, the masculine and the feminine side, the animus and the anima. And what's happening is, let's take Narcissus as a 16-year-old boy, if he does not come in contact with his own inner feminine, with, um, with his anima, we might say in Jungian terms, but with the sacred side of the feminine, allowing the other within and perhaps the other without to to penetrate his worldview, then he's going to be only one-sided. And that one-sidedness is going to, to end in kind of self-inflated love, but that self-inflated love is really around a certain persona or mask or image or reflection, and he's going to wither away and die. He won't grow. He won't live a long life. He won't become a wise person. He'll die in his own ignorance. So getting in contact with your feminine side, we might say, or if you want to reverse it, getting in in contact with the masculine side is part of adolescence, but it's tricky business and it's not guaranteed. And it's the time of life maybe where we're, we're most invested in our external images. And the thing about this reality is that in a narcissistic world or in the cul-de-sac of narcissism and nihilism is that our elders are not very present or they're hidden in the shadows right now. We don't have stories like the narcissist story saying, you have got to grow up, otherwise you're going to die. We actually have extended adolescence and called it adulthood. We've called it maturity. And material possession and fame and self-image have become the gods that we are worshiping. And in other words, we've allowed Narcissus cis, cis, God, 16-year-old self to be the pinnacle of maturity in our culture. So we don't have the we don't have very many corrective Images or measures uh, coming in to kneecap this tendency, and the, but the story is trying to pro- to provoke that. It's trying to say, "Be the change you want to be, be the change you want to see in the world." You have got to grow up. You have got to allow, and maybe this is what the biggest invitation of the story is saying: something like this. We are all prone to fall in love with our own self-image, and. The thing that's going to help us the most, make it to adulthood and maybe even to elderhood, is if that self-image is cracked. And that's kind of the sad thing about the narcissist story because every time he goes to kiss the image, it dissipates. And we would say there's a window of opportunity, but he doesn't take it. He remains still until that image reforms. Ah, it's back, okay. So all these opportunities, what we might call suffering, when your own self-image is cracked, and here are ways your own self-image is cracked. You, your um, partner challenges you on something. The person you fell in love with, it's not reciprocated. Um, you are issued divorce papers out of the blue. You get fired at your job for doing the right thing. Um, or Whatever. Your, my dad uh, was diagnosed with ALS. He's a nice guy, you know, and he just tried to live a nice, good Christian life and was funny and was relatively ethical and moral and a pretty good father. And of course, we all have hangups with the fathers and more could be said about that. But that's not fair. You know, that's the cracking of the way things should be and even of my own persona, how the world looks through my mask it's crack and every time there's a crack we can work pretty hard or in the narcissist story allow the image to reform or maybe in more practical sense work really hard to put the image back together I need the world to be the way the world is um, according to me which is back and toward that narcissistic leaning that we all have um, we try to patch the world back together again. But what I'm saying is that the cracks are the opportunity. And that's what the story is saying. The cracks are the opportunity. And I think there's something else that's going on here in the story that has particular relevance for my phone and your phone. And that is that Facebook, along with Instagram and Twitter, and, and now even our news feeds, are being called an echo chamber. They're echoing back what we think we need. what the algorithms think we want to hear. So if we don't like Trump, we're going to get negative stories about Trump. If we do like Trump, we're going to get positive stories about Trump. Who's deciding? Well, the algorithms are deciding. They are actually doing exactly what Echo is saying. The news feed is repeating back to you the very last line you just said. And every time you repost and um, like... And affirm you—you you are participating in the echo chamber, and your worldview is being echoed back to you, um, and your likes and dislikes are coming back to you. What you buy is coming back to you. I mean, is it not getting creepy? You know, I feel like my phone is listening and it probably is. You know, I'll be interested in some random ski glove and then the next day it appears on my Instagram feed. Like, what the hell? Who, what is going on? The echo chamber, you know? And and the question psychologically for me, and maybe we could even say spiritually for me, is it How healthy is it spiritually when our own voice in a myriad of ways is the thing we're ultimately listening to, and it's on repeat, and what I like is coming back to me, what I dislike is coming back to me, and around and around and around it goes. It's like in the cul-de-sac, you know, we're just in a kind of loop. What breaks that? Well, not very much from when it comes to popular culture. And I think the story is saying, only encounter with other, and this comes back to my magical podcast, um, magical pod, that, that's awesome, my podcast on the magical other, now known as the Magical Podcast. Um, only radical contact with the other as other breaks the spell of the magical fantasy, and the same could be said with. Our own tendency toward narcissism. Only radical contact with the other as other breaks the narcissistic gaze. We are prone to fall in love with the image we have of ourselves. What breaks it? Any kind of real radical contact with the other as other. That could be your spouse, that could be your child, um, that could be a tree in the forest. that could be an encounter with a a, a flyby crow in your window. Um, that could be the moon in, the moon last night and in all it was I think it was a full moon last night or the night before it was just the way it lit up the snow lit um, uh, forest where I happen to live where my house happens to sit. This kind of like it just like a sudden flash of the world as radical other. Uh, breaks the narcissistic gaze and kneecaps our tendency to fall in love with with ourselves and our worldview and our way of being. And the question is something like, what if we lived with that kind of humility? What um, What if you didn't allow your phone to decide what's worth your time and your emotional energy and what you're interested in or not? You didn't hand that over. Um to, to the echo chamber, I guess, to hear your own voice uh, just again and again and again until you're sick to death of it. You know, What does it look like to move about in the world with greater openness to the radicalness of any other? And I think the same could be said about your inner landscape, which is why I wanted to make a podcast on the Enneagram. So much of um, contemporary spirituality is about categorizing and limiting who we think we are. Um, that's the negative side, the downside. I am a four, I am an an ENFP, Um, I am a whatever, so forth and so on, which oftentimes serves to prop up the persona, not always. Um, In fact, that's probably one of the good things about the Enneagram. Good Enneagram teachers will tell you, if this does not embarrass you, it's probably not true, which is another way of saying when you're really beginning to encounter the underworld of who you are, it's embarrassing. So more of that, we might say. Uh, but my main point is uh, continuing to allow uh, allow yourself to be a mystery to yourself is the path. <laughs> to look in the mirror and say something like, I don't know who this person is. And to to examine your um, your uh, fantasies and your shortcomings and um, the complexity of your decisions and your motivations. I mean, Enneagram, in fact, is often about motivations, but motivations are very mixed. And when you begin to peer into that complexity, wow, I'm a mystery even to myself, breaks the narcissistic gaze. And that is a kind of radical internal encounter. And dreams are often that for me. This is one of the reasons why a lot of the work that I've been um, submitting myself to, and also engaged in, has been around dreams, because dreams do not play by those rules. Dreams do not play by the by the narcissistic uh, persona. In fact, you have a dream ego that is is not even in control inside the dreams. And you have your waking ego, which can't decide at all ahead of time, here are the five things I'd like to dream about tonight. In fact, every time you go to sleep and enter into the dream state, you are wandering around in terrain that breaks the narcissistic gaze. So working with dreams and allowing dreams to work on you and to engage with the characters and scenarios and imagery and emotional landscape, and I don't want to go into tremendous detail about how dreams work, but or how dreams work on us, but they do break the narcissistic gaze. I thought I knew who I was. And even in my dreams, I thought I knew what was going to happen. And I've decided this, this, and this are the very things that are often frustrated in in an actual dream scenario. So it's almost like the psyche um, wants, is cooperating with us to break the narcissistic gaze. So maybe what I'm saying I'll try to land the plane here is that we need more and more radical encounters with other the natural world other human beings the forest the natural world the any kind of radical radical means rooted rooted encounter with the other as other breaks the narcissistic gaze and I think we have some responsibility to, if you want to grow up spiritually. I suppose you don't have to take responsibility, but if you want to grow up spiritually, to uh, fight the tide of narcissism and nihilism in our culture, and that's not that that's not an easy thing, and to fight the pull of ideological entrenchment and fight the pull of categorizing and labeling everybody and everything and identifying with those categories and labels in with everybody and everything and um to open ourselves up to the to radical encounter of the uh of the other as other which um i don't know to do that is to be the change you that we wish to see in the world. I mean, if more people were moving about with a kind of humility and openness to the other as other, to radical encounter with the other as other, um, to really see, uh, and then, then thus creates a world of compassion, empathy, sight, vision. Um, uh, it's life giving, it's life oriented. It's, uh, nurturing and more holistic and all the things that all of us really crave for, I think I'd say. So I feel like um, enough has been said just to stir the pot. That's my intention, hints and guesses. And to just muse and mull on the story of narcissist and echo maybe you heard something maybe you heard one word that's bred for a thousand let's end with uh, david white's poem this is not the age of information this is not the age of information forget the news and the blurred screen and the radio this is not the age of information forget the news and the radio and the blurred screen This is the time for loaves and fishes. People are hungry. There's the line. People are hungry. And one good word is bread for a thousand.